listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I am Jess O'Reilly, your friendly neighborhood sexologist. And today I'm in Toronto, joined by Dr. Marky Twist, sex therapist and Professor Neil MacArthur, ethicist, both of whom are experts in digisexuality, among a broad range of other topics. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks so much, Jess. We're excited. And also, I have a man with no title, <laughs> Sir Brandon Ware. Sir Brandon. <laughs> uh, because we're going to be talking about various relationship arrangements. And we were setting up downstairs, and Brandon eyes lit up so we said okay baby you can come in the room oh is, is that how it played out yeah well dr marky said you could come. D- yeah <laughs> they, they allowed me they allowed it they allowed it they allowed me to attend yeah, dr marky and <laughs> professor neil yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm getting a little off on calling him professor neil yeah yeah they they've outvoted me so before we get started i want to say thank you very much this episode is brought to you by desire resorts and cruises join me and sir brandon ware in Mexico, in October, we will be at Desire Riviera Maya and Desire Riviera Maya Pearl hosting some fun workshops. You can find the dates on the website, sexwithdrjess.com. Now, Marky and Neil, I'm going to drop the professor and doctor for a moment, and Sir Brandon. And Sir Brandon. I'd like to continue to be called Sir Brandon. <laughs> so you're experts in digisexuality. Tell us a little bit about what that means. Yeah, well, actually, I'm, I'm going to let Neil take it, because Neil's the person who originally came up with the term in the academic context. Yeah, uh, it's meant to be a fairly broad term. It refers to uh, people who have sexual experiences via some of the more advanced technologies. We're not talking about vibrators or anything like that. We're talking about, you know, your, your phone, your computer, um, whether it's sexting, whether it's Skyping. Uh, that's what we call the first wave of digisexualities, and then one thing we're particularly interested also is in the kind of technologies that we're just starting to see emerge, which we call second wave digisexualities, and which are things like VR and um, well, robots, and all those all those things that we think are going to create a very different kind of sexual experience from the kind of uh, sexual experience we're used to. But basically, at its core. Digisexuality is just any kind of technologically mediated sexual experience. And we also are starting to study people that we call digisexuals, who are people who, in fact, uh, prefer technologically mediated experiences as their primary form of sexual experience. Mm -hmm. So are are people who identify as digisexual or who you might identify as digisexual, do they face a lot more judgment? Like other people who say, well, that's not real. Because even with online dating, I still cannot get over that in 2018, there is such a stigma about, oh, well, that's just a digital connection or that's digital intimacy. And I was asked to do an interview the other day on why digital intimacy is bad. And I couldn't really talk about reasons why it's bad. I think it's different and in some ways enhances. So are they facing a great deal of judgment? What are you seeing? Because you're doing lots of media interviews on this. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're seeing two, two things. One is dismissal, and the other is actual panic or hostility. Oh, yeah, I think that's actually more common. So I was just giving a talk in London, 
a room full of really bright, thoughtful, kind therapists, who many of which were freaking out the moment I mentioned that there's a population of people who identify as digisexuals who would prefer to have sex via technologies and are really excited about their future robot and we need to be supportive and a whole bunch of therapists were just like, but that's wrong, even therapists, that's wrong, that's, you know, that's, they're going to miss out on the human connection. And what Neil and I have talked about is this is like technophobia, so fear of technology, mixed with erotocentrism, where my way of being sexual is better than your way of being sexual, which we see across the board with like consensual non-monogamy and, uh, you Kink. know, anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mixed with like what's emerging as a digisexual phobia. Um, so people are really actually afraid. Well, at the same time, my colleague Kat Hurtline and I are writing about how people actually have an attachment to their technology already. So you're starting to see like separation anxiety or, you know, fear of missing out, FOMO. And it's like, I'm attached to my technology. I can't be without it. And we are okay with that on the one hand, but we're not okay if for some reason I decide I want to start licking my technology and perform oral <laughs> sex on someone else, right? Like, that's too far. Are we going to have that technology where I can lick my phone or lick a toy and then Brandon on the other end can feel my licks? Absolutely. We already have that technology. Yes, and not only do we have that technology, um, we, have, we have a great word for it, which is teledildonics. Yeah. I gotta tell you, this is awesome to me. I'm like sitting here with a giant smile on my face. This, I think this is incredible. I, I'm sorry to interject, no. but really quickly, why are people afraid? Like you said, these therapists, mm -hmm. is it the idea? Is it old school? Is it like when, I'm not trying to t broad, paint with broad strokes, but when, when an elderly generation is like, well, back in the day, this is the way we did things. And it's like very dangerous because to me, I see so many positive things that could come out of this. I think I'm really excited about the prospect of somebody licking their phone and me being pleased on the other end. Yeah, you and I, 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 And yeah. I'm just like, wow. I think about, I think about being a teenager, being a young adult, and all the benefits that could possibly yeah. come out of this from safe yeah. sex, from yeah. all sorts of that. That's my first angles. thought as an educator. Why are we so judgmental of these acts that, in fact? in many ways reduce physio physical risk and in some ways reduce emotional yeah. risk. Like it's, we see this all the time with even dildos. People afraid that their child might, you know, ch child, teenager might use a dildo and derive pleasure from it. And I'm thinking a dildo can't get you pregnant. A dildo is unlikely to transmit STIs mm -hmm. unless you're sharing mm -hmm. it with your friend next door who mm -hmm. tests positive. So th this is really, it's an interesting mm -hmm. field. Uh, I, we actually did a, an interview, if you want to go back, with Professor Neil MacArthur about robot sex. So if you're interested in robot sex, Brennan, are you interested? Well, well, I am I am absolutely interested in robot sex. <laughs> but, but, but doc, Professor Neil, you gotta tell me about what is the term again? Teledildonics. Awesome. That is my new hashtag. <laughs> Teledildonics. I'm gonna use it for like on a week. everything. Yeah, on everything. Yeah. So you can go back and check out that interview on sex robots early. I think it was early 2017. But I want to talk about other relationship arrangements, mm -hmm. relationship types mm -hmm. that perhaps people aren't familiar with because mm -hmm. we were talking about relationship anarchy relationship hierarchies, affectional-only relationships, loving but platonic relationships. So, Dr. Markey, I thought we'd start with you because in your personal life, 
in your professional life, you study these things, and in your personal life, you live them. So maybe you can give us a little rundown of what's going on in your life and what we can learn about these various terms. Yes. Yeah, so for many people that are in consensually non-monogamous situations, they still have a relationship hierarchy where there might be a primary partner, a secondary partner. Um, and, and that implies some sort of structure where one person has kind of more power and privilege in the dynamic than other people. Well, quite some time ago, based out of Sweden, um, an activist, this is going all the way back to 2012, named Andy Nordgren, um, presented this concept of relationship anarchy, where they basically said, you know what, all relationships should have meaning in our life, and we shouldn't necessarily give more weight or privilege or power to one relationship type over another. And then my colleague out of the UK, Meg John Barker, has written about this pretty extensively since then. So in my own life, I have currently um, what I would consider to be kind of like a life partner. I mean, we're domestically partnered. We're every, everything to each other, as if that's even possible, but that's the attempt. On top of that, however, I have what's called a parenting partner. So this is someone that I don't have a sexual relationship with, although we have an affection with for each other. We love each other. We're co-raising um, a child together, and, and we've been doing that for five years. Um, historically, I've also had what's called affectional partners. So people that I just cuddle with, that I have a commitment to, that I spend time with, that are my friends. Maybe there's some kissing. Maybe there's been some making out. Um, but we don't have traditional sexual structures with each other, yet there's still a deep sense of love and connection to each other. Um, and if you really start to think about it, uh, there's all sorts of pros to that for many people. Having said that, sometimes people get very uncomfortable with this idea of, of any sort of, you know, non-monogamous situation because it means, what's my place in relation to my partner? And I think that was kind of like Brandon. Well, that's, that's definitely where I, before we began, I was a little, just being completely honest, I said to the to everyone here, I would have a, I think I would struggle with that. I think initially I would struggle. My visceral response would be, whoa, this is different. And where do I fit into the mix here? And again, I'm being very honest mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, certainly, you know, non-judgmental. I definitely see the pros. I could see some of the cons. And I'm sure that people that are listening are going to you know, have, a, have a, a very strong feeling towards one or the other. But personally, I could see how I would feel threatened and insecure. Mm -hmm and uncomfortable and I also wonder how would even if I was receptive to it how do you go about starting that conversation with your partner mm -hmm. how do you go about finding somebody I really want to go back to the teledildonics I'm not going to <laughs> this, but like but you're, well, talking, you're talking but the, about the affectional partner so we were talking yes. about someone with whom you have a physical, mm -hmm. affectional relationship mm -hmm. but no sex right and I remember when you and I first spoke about mm -hmm. this you had said it was like a younger person mm -hmm. uh, of age yep. who was not ready for sex with yeah. you in your... So yeah. tell us a little bit about that. So historically, what how this has worked for me is either someone who tends to be more on a spectrum of asexual, so someone who oh. might not have interest in sex but still wants to be affectionate with a person. Um, and I think as a, as a person, I actually really like human contact. Like mm -hmm. I like cuddling. I like being kissed on the forehead. I, I enjoy people telling me they love me. I like telling people I love them. And so that arrangement worked really well because it's someone who isn't interested in sex necessarily, 
um, but shouldn't be deprived of still having human contact and affection if they would like that and feeling loved. Um, so that didn't necessarily pose a threat to, at the time, my primary and secondary partners. I don't think that was threatening. I, I think that probably the best way it was thought of for people that do have a sexual relationship was that it was more like a very intimate friendship. Right. Because people have friendships that are that intimate. They just don't call them an affectional partner when you're dealing with relationship anarchy. The idea is everybody kind of becomes a partner. Right. I think that's really interesting because we live in a culture that idealizes and prioritizes your intimate partner above all else. Yeah. We work with this myth that that person can fulfill all of your needs. And Brandon, that's sort of what you were speaking to where you, you said that if, if I have to go get affection someplace else, where does that leave you, right? Are you doing something wrong? Are you missing out? And so with relationship anarchy, the notion that all relationships matter, what, what does the research say about what we can do? What, what legal implications do we run into? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's a number of things to consider when you're talking about a relationship anarchy. One of the things that I think a lot of people who are in more, if we can say, traditional non-monogamous relationships, <laughs> now, um, they place a lot of emphasis on negotiating rules and boundaries. Yes. And that's very important to them. And I think one of the things that relation that relationship anarchy emerges from is a reaction to that. And they don't, and they don't believe that you should have those those kinds of very, you know. I don't know if rigid is the right word, but, you know, those, those set kinds of contracts and so on. And I think that if people are sort of evaluating whether, you know, is relationship anarchy right for you, I think one of the things you have to ask yourself is, are you comfortable with uh, pre-negotiated boundaries and contracts and so on, which a lot of people find is necessary to make non-monogamy work, but which relationship anarchy people say is precisely the problem for them with other kinds of non-monogamous relationships. So that's one of the real crucial differences, and I think obviously that's going to be an attraction for some people and not so attractive to others. Mm -hmm. But philosophically, can you really have relationship anarchy? Like at some point, are you not negotiating some boundaries and rules? And again, to clarify, relationship anarchy, you would define as... It's primarily the idea that no one relationship is more primary or more powerful or privileged over any other kind of relationship. So... It then becomes up to the person, each individual, to structure relationships how they see them. Um, and it might be that I structure it one way, but let's say that I have a relationship with someone that's an affectional partner. They might just consider it a friendship. Okay. It isn't that, that one of us is wrong. In fact, in process, we're still doing the same thing with each other. We just are maybe labeling it differently. Right. At some point, though, does someone need to say, this is what I'm okay with, this is what I'm not okay with? Absolutely. Like, I think even if I'm serving food... It still needs food. to be consensual. <laughs> it still needs to be consensual. Because, I mean, even within the, that description, there are, in theory, some rules. Like, it's not anarchy 24-7. It's like, because you might be disrupting the norm, but there are still some... Yeah. I mean, but I would interpret Marky, there's some sort of rules. I don't think you're a relationship anarchist, though. I have to say, no. I'm not sure you are. So I'm not no, sure we I'm should not. look at the way you do it. I mean, no, I think I think it's actually quite important to a lot of people who practice relationship yeah. anarchy that they yeah. have as few rules as possible and that the rules are as malleable as possible. Yeah. And so I wonder if people, if we look at the big five personality traits, if there are certain people who are more attracted to this. Like, I, I think that I need 
Well, Brandon would say that I don't need structure, but I do need a little bit of <laughs> yeah, structure. Yeah, that's surprising. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, I need to be able to talk to you about what I need, what my boundaries are, what I feel. And I'm not saying that that is absent from relationship anarchy, but I think there would be a lot of more for me personally, again, mm-hmm. without judgment, openings for misunderstanding and hurt feelings for me. Yeah, I think that for me, I'm more structured than pure relationship anarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely have respect for people who want to practice relationship anarchy and who are kind of rejecting sort of this this patriarchal heteronormative assumption right. that relationships have to have these rules and they have to work certain ways. I think more the more importantly, the idea is a push against that. I think that's kind of the core of relationship anarchy. And on that level, I definitely agree, which kind of also led to the idea of parenting partners. Because when you think about it, not only do we have this idea that an intimate partner needs to be sort of end-all, be-all, everything, we also have this idea that I have to be the perfect parent. And if you're, you happen to be a mother-identifying person, there's a ton of pressure, especially that way. And and in two-parent homes, you know, there's a lot of pressure for both people to be sort of perfect parents when there's such a possibility to include someone else in a kid's life. And I really believe that the more people that love and care about your kid, the better off your kid is in the long run. And the notion of it takes a community. I want to go back to your parenting Absolutely. partner because I think that's an interesting, interesting structure um, that you probably face a lot of judgment for. Yeah. But before we do, I'd like to wrap on on this uh, concept of relationship anarchy and ask Neil, as an ethicist, what legal implications and challenges and hurdles people face. Yeah, I think that um, I, I think the the legal the legal ethically, I think it the main question is just are both people going to be on the same page with it? All and, people. Uh, all people. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Um, because again, I think that. Uh, I think that a lot of people who are in the non-monogamy community feel that um, rules and structures are kind of what makes them, um, not only makes their relationships work, but what makes their relationships work better than monogamous relationships. Because mm-hmm. I think that they would say, well, one of the problems with monogamous relationships is people don't negotiate. They don't have these conversations. And so I think if you're moving towards a structure where, once again, you're, you're maybe trying to move beyond those kinds of structures, uh, there's going to be lots of challenges. Um, now... In terms of uh, in terms of in terms of the the legal structure, I think that yeah, we're probably a ways off before we could even figure out any way of kind of granting um, legal recognition to um, relationship anarchists. And I think that, quite honestly, I think that uh, most relationship anarchists would be horrified at the thought that you know there would be any kind of legal recognition. I think that the kinds. I mean, I think that for people, lots of people in uh, certain kinds of polyamorous relationships, obviously, uh, they would see. Um, legal recognition as being really important to validating their relationship. I think that the people who practice uh, relationship anarchy are quite invested in existing outside of existing legal structures. So I think that any attempt to put them as make them any part of the recognized law would then lead them to do something <laughs> to make sure they weren't. That was prediction. Right. It's a radical approach to relationship Absolutely. redesign, not a transformative one. That is that mm-hmm. is a, that is a very very good. Way. Can I ask really quickly, how would somebody go about finding somebody else who's interested in a, a, a relationship anarchist type of relationship? Yeah, in terms <laughs> of your own life, I mean, that is a very good question because 
Um, you can certainly go online and find Reddit groups and Facebook groups and so on, but are you going to actually meet those people in real life? I, I have to say, my own experience, I've never seen anyone identify that way on Tinder or anywhere else like that. So I just think you encompass those values and those beliefs or the lack yeah. thereof, and then to find somebody else who yeah. it must be a very difficult mm-hmm. thing to do. I, I would say that's right. I'd say mm-hmm. they'd probably face a lot of challenges. But, but you know what? That said... Within some of the larger non-monogamy communities, I think that there are a, mm-hmm. a, you're seeing a, a larger mm-hmm. number of people who are passionately identifying this way, and so it's probably getting easier once you're already with inside a large enough phenomenon. And are you seeing more younger people gravitate toward this relationship anarchy structure? I think my like... parents are interested in relationships. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is an anarchy. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's another subject. I haven't, I haven't seen research on it. I mean, we know that there's lots of research that show that actually. Uh, a lot of interest in non-monogamy tends to come among people who are older who have been in a relationship a certain amount of time. I mean, young people, I think still to this day, I think that young people are more interested these days in different kinds of relationship structures than they were 20, 30, 50 years ago. But at the same time, uh, so many young people uh, go into their first relationship thinking that this is perfect and it's going to be everything and everyone, and uh, you know, it's going to fulfill all their needs. And it, it takes sometimes a little while to sort of figure out that you need something. It takes some time to crush your hopes and dreams. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> but we are here to do that early on <laughs> in the doing process. We're for you. <laughs> now, I don't, I, Dr. Markey, we're using um, some of your experience as a bit of a case study here yeah. because you have some interesting experiences. But the parenting partner role, because you used all this language and I think some of it became glossed over. Mm-hmm. You, have, um, you, you are, are a parent. You mm-hmm. have a biological parent with mm-hmm. whom you had a child. And then you have a parenting partner who is who you love, but you're not physically involved with. Yep. So I have a parenting partner who I love and who I, I believe loves me. And, <laughs> um, and she has been involved in my child's life or our child's life for five years now and has you know lived with us, been a part of our family, travels with us, um, is on the school records. Uh, you know, if something were to happen to me, like, God forbid, if I were to, to drop dead or something of that nature, like her and my, uh, you know, domestic partner are listed as the people that would become the parent to um, the child. So, yeah, I mean, it's a very intense commitment with another person where uh, we call each other family and um, we all love each other. And it's for the, the benefit of a, a little child. And it started as a childcare role and grew into this? Is so that- when I originally talked to her, um, I said to her, hey, I need someone to be a part of my child's life. Um, and she said, oh, like a, you know, like a babysitter. And I said, nope, not like that. And she said, oh, like a nanny. I said, nope, actually not like that either. I said, what I'm asking is that you become a part of our family. Like I need you to be a partner with me. And I like you so much as a person already. And therefore, you're someone that I think would be a great fit for our family because she was someone that was a big ally within the queer community where we lived in Wisconsin. And I knew that my family, being pretty not traditional in structure, um, would take somebody who was already accepting of the kind of structure that we had and the kind of uh, non-monogamy at the time that we were practicing Um, and she agreed, she accepted, and I'm not sure that she knew that meant five years ago that she'd still be, you know, part of our family and that, you know, we'd have, so we don't celebrate like Mother's Day or Father's Day, we celebrate like Parenting Day, and 
and all of us get together and, and embrace those roles together, me and her and um, our domestic partner and then our child. So, yeah. So. How long did you know her before you asked her to get involved? So I knew her about nine months. Okay. So I knew her from the campus that I was working at in Wisconsin because she was a big part of the queer community and worked in the queer center. And I had observed her interactions with other students and other kids and other bulls and I had spent a lot of time with her and I knew that she wanted to kind of have more role in my own life. Like she wanted to be a teaching assistant and I looked at her and I said, well, actually I want you to help raise my kids. So if you want to be a TA too, that's fine. But what I really need is you to be a part of my child's life. And um, it's been so wonderful just to have, you know, another partner who I genuinely value as a parent and I think is a great influence on my kid. I mean, my kid developed a little bit of a fear of spiders thanks to her. Now we've, we've backtracked and, and you know, re, re got that under control. But I mean, just they, there's so much power that, that um, adults have in a kid's life. So, and Neil's giving me that look like, yeah. It can go badly, though. Yeah, I'm going to be the devil's advocate. I don't <laughs> want to come off as someone who disparages or discourages these kinds of parenting arrangements because I do think that's right, and I think you can point to research that shows that the more the adults are involved in a child's life, uh, the better it is for that child. But I also think that people need to go into these arrangements extremely aware of potential legal implications because to be a parent is to have a lot of power. and. I'm thinking in particular of a case. Now, it was, a, it was an isolated case, and it's not clear what the implications are going to be, but there was a case in New York State, New York City, in fact, where there was, there, were, there was a woman who was involved in a child's life. There was a woman who had a child, and then a former uh, sexual partner of hers, former relationship partner, who was no longer, they were no longer in a relationship and hadn't been in a relationship for the child's life, um, but she was involved with the child. And... Uh, I think took the child for maybe a couple afternoons a week um, and they would all often all have dinner together and so on and so was was in some sense a parenting partner and uh, the woman who was the child's mother decided she wanted to move back from to England and so the, her parenting partner her friend said okay well that's great I would just like to have the child for one afternoon before you leave and then uh, when she was supposed to pick the child up in fact she was delivered with you know, like whatever you call it, uh, something from the court saying that she was not allowed to leave because this woman was claiming that she was a co-parent and she now had the right to prevent uh, the mother from taking the child out of the country. Um, and she was successful in court, in fact, and prevented this woman from moving away uh, based on what she asserted to be her parenting relationship. And so as soon as you can have yourself recognized as a legal parent, you can prevent uh, the, the child and the, the other parent from moving away uh, you can prevent them from having medical treatment. I mean, if you if your child had leukemia and your parenting partner didn't believe in, uh, you know, in traditional medical or in, you know, standard medical treatments, you can prevent that child from receiving those treatments, potentially. Uh, if the child has revenue, you're entitled to an equal share of that revenue. Uh, so I think that you know, there's been a movement right now to broaden our conception of parenthood, which I think is broadly positive and I think has been driven by uh, you know, the LGBTQ community who believe that they are, you know, they, they are more likely to engage in these sorts of uh, parenting relationships, and I think that's great. Uh, but I think we need to be very careful with what this all, with what this all means, because being a parent is to have a lot of power, I think. And so you want to think about how you protect yourself 
That's right. And I think that if you're if you're looking at, I mean, I think that right now the legal situation is such that uh, you've got this one precedent in New York that is is probably not going to govern in other jurisdictions. But at the same time, I think that as we look down the road, I think that's right. I think that people need to think about maybe as a takeaway message, if you're going to have a co-parent, that's great. But think about contractually maybe setting the terms um, from the start. That would be my advice. But obviously, These are serious relationships, and I don't think anything with this level of severity or, or implication should be entered into lightly. I mean, it's kind of like if you're going to have a child with somebody, you should be having these same conversations. And if you're going to have a co-parenting partner, you should be having these same sorts of conversations. That's a, that's a great exactly. way to put it. Exactly. Yeah, I think exactly. that's right. I think that because I think that the risk here is that people think that because, you know, this is, oh, well, this is just my parenting partner. This is just two afternoons a week. This is whatever that they don't have those conversations, which you're right, which they would presumably hopefully have in a more traditional parenting arrangement. So I guess maybe the advice is exactly take the same wisdom that you would bring to a more traditional parenting arrangement into mm -hmm. these sorts of situations. But I do see a lot of positives that could come out of these sorts of, of uh, um, parenting arrangements uh -huh. as relationships evolve and as they change. Mm -hmm. And again, also some of the, the benefits, I mean, you know, that old saying, takes a village to and it, it, and, it, and it does and I and we live in a very close knit community in Toronto and I see how the the part the, the families here galvanize and come together and support one another without having a, a more formal co-parenting type of agreement but I see them sharing in the responsibilities and I see how much the families benefit from it. Mm -hmm. I see how much the children benefit mm -hmm. from it. So I think <clears throat> if you can find your your group, your people, or your persons, mm -hmm. that it could could you know definitely impact in a positive way your your child's life. Yeah, and I mean I think we should keep in mind too that the idea that you've got two or one adult in a child's life raising them is a very recent mm -hmm. sort of Western centric mm -hmm. one that yeah. most mm -hmm. people in most times and places wouldn't even recognize. Right. Every time we say the word traditional, we're actually talking about white Western society. Mm -hmm. Looking at a hundred years ago, mm -hmm. when you look at human history, it's anything but traditional. Mm -hmm. Now, Dr. Markey, when you describe the parenting partner arrangement and how you feel, it's, I mean, it, to me, it's quite moving that you would invite someone into your child's life. It makes me think about a lot of nannies. Mm -hmm. uh, I think of some of my cousins who, I don't want to say were raised by nannies, but mm -hmm. the nannies were integral to their upbringing, mm -hmm. and they really do love them. They love these kids. Mm -hmm. They stay in touch as they get older. Mm -hmm. And we don't afford the respect to these caretakers, mm -hmm. these people who did so mm -hmm. much in life. And I think that race plays a role here. I think that oftentimes, like in Toronto, for instance, a lot of these nannies are coming over from the Philippines or mm -hmm. elsewhere where they have fewer financial and uh, mm -hmm. you know professional opportunities and I, I, I feel like the exchange of money doesn't need to create that hierarchy because mm -hmm. there can be an exchange of mm -hmm. money in a parenting yeah. co-parent relationship. Yeah. yeah there absolutely can. I mean just like any other kind of partnership right 
there can be an exchange of money in any kind of partnership, right? I, I mean, had to pay Brandon for his services it, last night. Exactly. Or right See? Now. It happens, right? <laughs> right yeah, right we're all going to pay Brandon, apparently. That's <laughs> yes. what's going to happen. You'll be able to afford the teledildonics the that you want, finally. Yes, we're going to talk about that later. He actually only gets paid in loonies. Oh, no. Those are Canadian dollars, folks. Not even the toonies. No. No, well... But yes, there can't be an exchange, and and uh, when 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 you apply, when we go back to the idea of sort of like anarchy, um, and not putting one kind of relationship structure mm. over another. See, that's what I mean when I say parenting partner. It's different than in some ways. It's different just in the idea of a nanny, only because there is some sort of because of the structure in our society, probably the westernization and the patriarchy, but. There's some sort of perceived power in that dynamic versus you are my you are my partner with you are my life partner in raising this child. And yes, I'm going to, um, you know, pay for that in some way, shape or form, but I'm going to get so much out of that relationship. And so is my kid, too. And our structure changed uh, because several years into it, she just moved in with us and I. Um, and she had her own life and her own job and, and um, you know, schooling, but I paid for the home. And that was the arrangement. So um, I, I just think that when you start to conceptualize, you know, if someone is helping raise your child, you have to think to yourself, do I really want them to feel like their voice is less valuable? And I, I think Neil's points are really good. Like on the one hand, maybe you do legally want to feel that way. But in everyday practice, I think, you know, if people treat, you know, a, a nanny or childcare provider as if they're the help, I think that's really disparaging and I think it's going to be kind of harmful in the long run towards what your child sees in terms of who helps have input into their life and who loves them and cares for them. So to me, having it be a partnership just sort of is calling it what it actually is. Right. Right, yeah. that makes sense. And I mean, the child aside, this is a person with whom you share love. Yeah. And I, th I think that's what's difficult for people to wrap their minds around, that you can love someone so intensely with and have them a part of your family without having some sort of a sexual attraction or yep. relationship. And you, I've heard women, straight women, say things like, maybe we're just, just supposed to, and I'm going to paraphrase here, I'm probably screwing up the quote, but maybe we're just supposed to screw the guys and marry our best friends. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I've heard that. It's the idea that like your best friend is actually your soulmate. And of mm -hmm. course, in this heteronormative context, it's they're talking about a female friend, right? Like my best mm -hmm. girlfriend with whom I have share no sexual attraction. And uh, I, I think that there's something to be said of that. Mm -hmm. I think that, again, if there's one message I think people can take home it's that there is no one-size-fits-all approach and no one will fulfill all of your needs that's right and we have this idea with western modern romance that one person should fulfill all of our needs and we sit in such harsh judgment so i'm going to ask a final question of you why are we so judgmental of relationship arrangements that are so different than our own and how if we recognize that judgment can we move past that do you want to start? Yeah, again? why are we so why are we so judgmental? I don't know. People are people are judgmental about relationships. People are judgmental about a lot of things. We're all judgmental about 
Christmas fashion, for instance. Um, <laughs> and maybe that's okay. Um, how, to, how to move beyond that? I, you know, honestly, I'm a big fan of social change through modeling. I think that the, one of the things the research shows is that it's very hard to tell people um, that a certain way of life is best, but if you show them uh, that life in action, and some people call this the will and grace effect, that one of the biggest impacts on people's attitudes towards LGBT, LGBTQ people is seeing you know, will and grace on television, mm. um, living, this, living this alternative relationship life. They were best friends. He dated men. And that really changed people's attitudes towards alternative family structures, towards gay people, and all those things. And I think that if we can keep putting front and center positive models and positive modeling for alternative relationship structures, the way I think that Dr. Markey does when she sort of comes out here and tells us about mm-hmm. her relationships, I think that's going to be a lot more, uh, have a lot more impact mm-hmm. and than, uh, than us just saying, oh, well, here's what the research says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree with that. I also, you know, a while back, <laughs> this will be funny because it goes to research, a decade ago, I wrote my dissertation on gay male couples in Alaska because I'm originally from Alaska. And I thought, you know, um, I'll go back there and I'll find out what it's like to be in a relationship with another man in Alaska. It's cold. That's yeah, it exactly. It's, yeah. Just cold. <laughs> it's just cold. And they're all on fishing yeah. boats or driving <laughs> like big ice trucker things, I guess. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of discrimination that they faced uh, a decade ago. And, and um, Alaska was the first state that actually had written into their constitution that you couldn't marry somebody of a similar gender. Um, I mean, before it was even on the national level in the States, it was a very discriminatory uh, state for people in similar gender partnerships. But I interviewed this couple who had been together like 35 years, despite all that, and were very happy. And I asked them like how they dealt with the discrimination and the judgment. And what they told me was, we've always acted as if everyone's just okay with us. And so we just enter the world the way we would enter the world regardless. We just assume everybody's okay until otherwise. And what that did was it set it up so lots of people who maybe they would have never invited into their homes or had contact with had been in their homes. They'd had contact with. They'd joined churches. They had gone to the church barbecues with each other holding hands. And they just always acted as if everybody was accepting. And on the whole, they felt like most people were accepting. Now, maybe there was a lot of like microaggressions going on, but they just acted as if it was okay anyway. And people loved and cared about them. And um, maybe they shifted people's ideas. And so that's basically what I do with my relationship structures is I just act as if everybody is okay that I'm walking around with you know, uh, an intimate partner and a parenting partner and my kid, and we're all holding hands together. And I'm sure people are having some ideas about what's going on in our bedroom uh, between the three adults, but I don't care. I'm like, that's fine if you have those ideas. That's not what's happening. Um, But we do love each other and we are a family. And so I act as if it's okay. And so it seems that this couple and you give people more credit than is due and in doing so they adjust their behavior because we all want to be better people than we are right and that's partly what neil is saying it's an exposure effect as well that's right yeah that's a good way to put it yeah so brandon oh man here it goes i mean brandon and i met a long long time ago if you don't know we met 17 years ago 
we moved wow. in together. Yeah, we've, we've been years living ago. together for 17 years. Um, I was barely legal. <laughs> <laughs> Title of your sex tape. Title of your sex tape. And um, this was all new to you. So you showed up at the sex ed center at U of T and you saw things from the first week we started dating that you never would have imagined. And over the years, you've been exposed to so many things that we've either tried out and decided, yes, this is for us, or tried out and said, oh, absolutely not for us, but that's cool. And you always walk into the room without judgment, even though there are a lot of things you haven't heard of, right? Do you remember that wedding we went to? We went to a collaring ceremony, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. I ran into a guy I knew, and I said, how, how you doing? How you been? What you been up to? And he saw Brandon and saw vanilla written on his face, tattooed on his forehead. Well, I mean, on top of that, I was dressed inappropriately for the... Uh, well, not inappropriately. I was dressed differently. For, for the, the coloring. For the coloring. Oh, so the coloring. I had on a suit, <laughs> which oh, was whoops. just not what a lot of other people right. were wearing. Nope. You should tell them what the coloring ceremony Yeah, because I didn't know, really. So I'll let you explain it. So this was a, a dominant coloring his submissive mm -hmm. as a symbol of lifetime commitment. So everybody's mm -hmm. could be different, but this is what this was. Anyhow, so I said to this guy, how you been? What have you been up to? And he sees Vanilla Man over here. And he says, what did he say? He said, oh, I'm good, man. Did a big rape scene, kidnapped a girl the other day, put gang, her in a van, gang, gang, bang. gang bang that blank out blank of her. And, yeah. and of course, he was talking about a consensual, non-consent scene. Yep. But he was trying to shock you. Yeah, that didn't shock me. I was like, cool, man. Rock and roll. Everybody's on the same page. Do your thing. <laughs> yeah, and he it didn't was... didn't phase me in the least. The best part was how shocked he was that you weren't, <laughs> that you weren't shocked and you weren't judgmental. No. Because I think you walked in in looking the way you do in your, like, three-piece suit and bow tie because you thought it was a wedding. And um, I think he assumed you'd be judgmental. So how do you shed the judgment? The judgment is something that I struggle with especially within the realm of everything that we're talking about, because we're sitting here, we're having these conversations and I find them fascinating. I have so many more questions for you guys and I'm not going to ask them because I don't want this, this podcast to be three hours long, <laughs> but I can see so many benefits. I could see a lot of, I can see a lot of pros. I can see some cons. I'm, you know, the advantages of, of technology and sex and, and transmission of STIs, but I still struggle with the judgment component because I could see how, this could benefit our relationship tremendously. But within the, the, the confines, if you want to call it that, of Toronto, I could also see how I would be heavily judged. Mm -hmm. And it does impact my willingness to possibly engage in some of these. So, I mean, I understand that a part of this, I just got to shed my own insecurities around that. At the same time, I do wonder how I would be or how our relationship would be perceived by others if we did. So I like the idea of modeling behavior. I think that's a great way to see the positives, you know, to understand a bit more about different types of relationships. Um, but I, I just wonder how difficult would it be to, to kind of just jump in and to get involved? Like, is it something that you can just dip your toe into? Because I don't, again, I don't know how you would even do that initially. And what I am... Like, if you were interested in a co-parent uh, type of arrangement, uh, how would you even go about having that conversation with somebody? How do you find the right person? How do you know that those people, you know, have the same core beliefs mm -hmm. that you do? 
I mean, it's something that you'd have to you'd have to know people for for a while. Like you were lucky to find somebody, and I think mm-hmm. that that's incredible. But I wonder about the people that were around, and I like a lot of the people, but I'm I haven't had long enough conversations with them or deep enough conversations mm-hmm. to really understand. So, having said that, though, as you said earlier, you don't really know someone even when you marry them, right? Like everything is a risk, and just because something is an alternative, yep. doesn't mean that the risk is in fact intensified. But I also see people listen, or I can imagine people listening to this podcast and thinking, oh, that would never work. You know, that's bad or Mm -hmm. this is negative. And then they're going to separate in two, three, five years. And their children in that, during that interim, during that toxicity of of their relationship are then have the modeled behavior that's going to impact their relationships in the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's, it's how do you want to go about this? And it is about breaking down these traditional roles that people have and that's really where I find the the challenge is mm-hmm. letting go letting mm-hmm. go and just a- accepting that you know however you judge mm-hmm. me th- that's on you that's not on me mm-hmm. and like, it, that's, it that's ultimately mm-hmm. your problem mm-hmm. not mine when you say something like that would never work I would never do that what you really want to do when you have such a strong reaction is stop and say okay what's my fear here mm-hmm. like what's my because it's mm-hmm. always about you Absolutely. That ultimately, that's what it boils down to. When we've had some of these conversations, just you and I, really, my discomfort with the with the situation is my own insecurities. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know I may I may shift and, and blame something else, but at the end of the day, it's my own problem with right. whatever it is I'm bringing up. And I think one of what I can disclose that for Brent for us, Brendan. Um, we certainly do care what people think. Like I do have mm-hmm. a fear of being sure. judged. Um, I think it's it particularly intense for me as a woman, mm-hmm. although I'm sure it's tough for you. Like, I think that whenever we go down to these resorts mm-hmm. and we're playing or we're doing things, your fear is always that you're going to be judged as less of a man because of it. Absolutely. <laughs> Anyhow, I think we do have to stop there. Yeah. Talk to Marky. We can talk forever. Yes, Professor Neil. Thank you, Jess. That uh, was great. Yeah. I think people are going to want to learn more about these topics, uh, whether it's consensual non-monogamy, loving but platonic parenting partners, affectional relationships, digisexual relationships, the anarchy, the hierarchy. So where can people find you? Because you do research in the area, you publish in the area. Mm -hmm. Professor Neil, where can people find you? I think the most efficient way is through Twitter. I'm my hashtag or whatever you call it. I guess my handle. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a, it's not a hashtag teledildonics. Yeah, You're not gonna. It's at moral lust. M o r a l l u s t. Moral lust and Dr. Yep. Markey. Yep. So I have a web page. It's just drmarkey.com, and you can also find me on Facebook under Dr. Markey, and you can find me under Twitter at Dr. Markey Twist. All right. Well, thank you so much for thank being you. here. Thank you. great. Hopefully you've taken something out of this conversation that sparks you, sparks some interest to learn a little bit more and have a more meaningful conversation with whether it's a friend or a partner or someone else in your life. So thank you again also to at Desire Resorts. Make sure you check out my schedule down there at Desire in October and Brynn and I hope to see you there. Find me online, sexwithdrjess.com, at sexwithdrjess on all social media. I am heading to L.A. with WeVibe this week and then off to Spain for some very interesting meetings, one with a sex tech company, and then hopefully Brandon and I are going to take a little vacation.
but Brandon works so much he already left. (laughs) (laughs) He's coming back to say bye. All right, (laughs) folks, have a lovely week wherever you are. We'll be back next Friday morning with a new episode. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life.